Hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, book launch uh, hosted by the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. Uh, the book is Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Cross Crossroads by David Rundle. Run and we owe David a special thanks for being with us today, because presumably this is taking time away from his family and his Thanksgiving Day turkey. And we really appreciate it, David. Thank you. It's also a very auspicious day to have David speaking to us, given that it's just after the uh, Group of 20 virtual summit that was hosted by Saudi Arabia. It follows days after the meeting between uh, the, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And it's taking place on a day, that, or, or taking place at a moment at which there's uncertainty about the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia as Washington transits towards a uh, new administration headed by President-elect Joe Biden, who has said that, among other things, he would bring uh, human rights towards the forefront in his foreign policy, as well as in his relationship with Saudi Arabia. And then today is particularly auspicious because we have the opening of the trial of Lujain al-Hathloul, one of several women activists who've been imprisoned in Saudi Arabia for the last two years. Um, I think that having read David's book and David brings to his book uh, a unique quality, not only is he an Oxford educated fluent Arabic speaker, but unusual for a foreign service officer uh, and former US diplomat, David spent half if not more than half of his career as a diplomat in, the, in Saudi Arabia and has been traveling all corners of the kingdom and interacting with various segments and layers of Saudi society. So he brings to this a knowledge that is almost unrivaled. And on that note, David, the virtual floor is yours. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it's a pleasure to share some of my Thanksgiving day with you. Uh, it's what the Arabs would call Eid al-Shukr. And it's a day that we all should sit back and Spend a moment, even if you're not an American, uh, think about the things you've got to be grateful for in your life. I, uh, I don't remember who it was who said it, but the key to your happiness is uh, wanting what you have rather than uh, getting what you want. So we all have something to be thankful for today. Um, the book uh, is the result of many years of living in Saudi Arabia and trying to understand an unusual place that operates politically and economically and socially uh, in a different plane than most countries in the world. Um, it is a monarchy, a traditional functioning monarchy, the last strategically important traditional monarchy in the, in the world. Uh, it is a country where the people's living standard is divorced from their actual productivity due to their production of oil, which they basically get money coming out of the ground uh, so that their economy does not function in a normal way. And it is a country where religion 
uh, is still the key uh, driving ideology, which again is something that once was true in, uh, in Europe, but uh, is not, uh, hasn't been that way for some time. So it's an unusual place. Um, and I thought to explain what I had learned about it in the book. Um, the argument of the book is, I would say actually the thesis of the book really, is that Saudi Arabia has been more stable than many people expected for a long time. Uh, there are dozens of books predicting the collapse of Saudi Arabia, uh, and they have been proven to be wrong. Uh, the question that the book's out to answer was, why is that? And I used a model that explained that in, um, as, as James mentioned, that the book explains the model for why Saudi Arabia has been stable. Um, to go through that quickly, there are really four legs to the stability of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the first is the historic legitimacy that the kingdom, that the family who created the kingdom obtained from, uh, from unifying what had been a collection of city-states and wandering tribes, and that over a period of about 30 years, the beginning of the last century, they unified it. So they created the country of Saudi Arabia. Second thing that they did was they managed a succession process, which has been difficult for most um, Middle Eastern countries to do peacefully and quickly, and they managed to do that. So this, again, encouraged people to uh, believe that they had a sense of legitimacy. The third thing they did was they created a coalition of stakeholders that um, each of these stakeholders had an elite that was uh, had a symbiotic uh, relationship with the monarchy. The monarchy kept those people in charge of their group and those people got access to their group, for, uh, access for their group to the government. So it was a hand in glove relationship with these these elites, uh, which were running groups like the tribes, the religious establishment, the, um, the merchants, the technocrats, and the royal family itself. So anyway, this that's I'm trying to do this quickly so you don't ha have to, um, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but the final, um, the final leg of their stability was the um, ability to provide competent government and in the sense that related to security, economic development and providing a gradual social change that most people could um, accept the pace of. So all of those things contributed to Saudi stability. The thesis of the book is that the stability is less than it was five years ago because all of those things are changing. Uh, and so while Saudi Arabia was more stable than many people uh, predicted, it's today a bit less stable than many people presume uh, and all of those things have, uh, have eroded. And uh, I could go into that in detail if you wanted later on, but um, those, are the, those are the problems. Um, just to go through it quickly, many of those stakeholders have seen their interests uh, challenged by the reform process, which the King has undertaken. Um, so that's the, that's the thesis. The argument of the book really is that um, the next administration, whoever that is, a Biden administration in, uh, in the United States. Uh, but when I wrote it, I didn't know that. Um, that they have, um, that they would be wise to engage with Saudi Arabia. That I do, I believe if, if, that the comments about making Saudi Arabia a pariah state were for the campaign trail, I would be very surprised if they actually, um, if the new administration attempts to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. 
I think they may distance themselves or they may put some in emphasis on human rights more than the previous administration. But I think that uh, a reasonable person, and I think they are reasonable people, that they will see that uh, the United States needs partners. The United States needs allies. Uh, that uh, the United States is not the hegemon that it was in uh, 1990 when the Soviet Union collapsed that the American people are tired of being the world policeman, that they're tired of being the world moral tutor, um, that there are plenty of other people who are interested in taking our place as a leadership uh, in the global affairs. So we need allies and we need partners. And the Saudis have been good allies and good partners uh, most of the time for the last 75 years. And they remain so today uh, in a wide range of issues. Um, Counterterrorism, where they have been a strong ally for 20 years now, uh, stabilizing energy markets, uh, promoting the Arab-Israeli peace process. We talked about that, about the meeting between uh, Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman just this week. Um, and in general, being a, a status quo power which supports stability, which is the fundamental interest of the United States. Uh, so we have a strong relationship and a partnership that that said, the promotion of human rights is also a, an American value and also something that we um, get strength from, that it, it's, 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 a, it's soft power that is useful to the United States. And um, the Saudis don't have a very good record there, uh, whether it's the arrest of dissidents, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the war in Yemen, there are numerous areas where they have become, uh, they've been criticized. And I think that the new Biden administration will, um, will be firmer with them on that subject. However, um, if you think about what you're trying to do and accomplish with Saudi Arabia, which is A, to, remain, to maintain their partnership, two, B, to, um, support the reforms that are going on in Saudi Arabia. And we could talk about that. That's a whole nother conversation. But there are very significant, uh, very significant social and economic reforms going on in Saudi Arabia, which we should support and want to succeed. And the third thing is to improve their human rights. So if you want to maintain the partnership, support their own reform process, and uh, also improve their human rights, the only way to do that is to engage with them that if you try to make them a pariah state, uh, you probably won't succeed at any of those things. So I think those are the, that, the, the, that's the, um, if you will, the argument of the book. So I, um, I'll stop there. I think I've carried on a monologue long enough. I'll see if there's anything else you'd like me to specifically address. Whoops, are you on mute? I can't hear you. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I had to unmute myself. Let me start by uh, thanking everybody who's joined us for, for, for being with us today. And please, at any moment, uh, raise your hand uh, if you have a question or a comment, and we will make sure, to the degree possible, that you get the, the opportunity to pose it. While people are uh, make, thinking about what they may, may want to ask you, David, let me throw three questions at you or three points. One is, um, I think it would be useful if you could expand a bit on um, how uh, the reform process under King Salman and under 
conference, Mohammed bin Salman has shaken in some ways the, the traditional uh, pillars or uh, the stakeholders uh, position in all of this and what that what that means. Uh, second of all, one of the things that you uh, describe in your book to, to a great degree, and you're one of very few scholars that I'm aware of that do that, Rosie Bashira and her archive wars, maybe being another, which is the positioning of uh, King Salman as someone who was forward-looking and in some ways anticipated certainly some of these reforms, uh, for example, in terms of the relationship between the ruling family and uh, the religious establishment and what the legitimacy of the monarchy should be. Uh, I wonder if, uh, and then there are all the issues of his um, uh, position on corruption uh, and so on. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know, how if you look at the last 30 years of King Salman's governorship of Riyadh, how you could anticipate some of what has been enacted in terms of reforms in Saudi Arabia since he came to the throne. Uh, and the third point is, I wonder if you could comment on or whether you see significance in the fact that at a moment at which uh, Washington is transiting towards a more critical possibly more critical Biden administration, you are now getting the trial of, of one of the women um, activists. There's talk of a potential deportation of an Uyghur back to China. Is, is that some, are those things that we should read something in in terms of how Saudi Arabia is gonna approach the issue of um, human rights with the Biden administration? Or is that uh, an over interpretation? Okay. Well, I'll try to. Um, I'll. There's several different questions, so I may forget. Uh, I may forget one of them by the time I get done with the first ones. So you can remind me. Um, the reform process uh, has been political, economic, and social. And in each of those cases, it has antagonized somebody. Um, the social reforms, which are by and large supported by the majority of the people who are under 30, uh, has clearly un made unhappy uh, the religious conservatives. So what we now, I mean, I think most of your listeners who follow Saudi Arabia know that there's been substantial reform uh, and gender equality, that women can drive, that the guardianship regulations, which used to force a woman to have her guardian, which was usually her husband or her father, had to uh, sign off on a wide range of things, whether she wanted a bank account or travel abroad or have a cesarean delivery, all these things required approval. Uh, those things have that bar and large been dismantled. Women are now able to work in many different professions that five years ago they couldn't. Uh, they could always be doctors, but they, but lawyers, judges, uh, geologists, engineers, you, you name it. A lot of things which were, were closed to women are, are now open. Movie theaters are open. Rock concerts are being played in a place where they didn't like music. So the, re the religious police have been basically stripped of their powers and taken off the street. Um, obviously, if you're part of the religious establishment, this doesn't make you happy. Uh, they believe that they don't believe. They know that their livelihood to some extent and certainly their position in society depends on the maintenance of a very religious 
atmosphere and that has been eroded. Um, so they're less happy. Um, the business community, um, there were many subsidies and um, benefits, if you will, that they were able to uh, avail themselves of in running their businesses. Their business model was predicated on um, government support, which has been withdrawn in many cases. Uh, I'll give you some examples. They used to be able to get their power and water uh, very inexpensively. Now they are having to pay more realistic prices for much of that. Feedstock for petrochemicals has gone, gone up substantially. Uh, perhaps most importantly, they have, uh, they used to make, uh, they got great benefit from the fact that they had very inexpensive foreign labor. Uh, now they're, the cost of that foreign labor is going up and they're being encouraged and in some cases forced to um, hire Saudis. Taxes, which didn't exist effectively, have now been uh, introduced. So there, there, there are many things that they're not happy about. Uh, and the royal family itself uh, has seen many of its prerogatives um, stripped that the royal family, which used to be a collegial consensus-based uh, large organization, the power in that group has been very substantially concentrated. There used to be several senior princes, all of whom had very real power in their own right. Uh, that's all gone. There's really just one guy or one guy and his son who are in charge now. So um, I'll just give you another example. I mean, princes used to not have to pay their electric bill. Now they have to pay their electric bill. So obviously they're not happy about that. So uh, many of these different groups have reasons to be unhappy about reforms, which the majority of the people support and see as necessary and, and see as positive. Uh, but um, there certainly are some who, who are not happy. So I think that's the question of why the place is less stable because some of these people were very important to the stability of the regime and now they're less happy. Um, in terms of King Salman, um, I think the, um, he's a pragmatist. Uh, he's been a pragmatist for a long time. Uh, he's not an ideologue uh, and he, his primary goal is to preserve the monarchy and he sees things that need to be done in order to do that. And one of those was to downsize, if you will, the royal family and their prerogatives. Uh, he was well aware of the fact that um, people would not accede for a long forever to having thousands of princes, all of whom demanded special financial and legal privileges. Uh, there are a handful of people that the, the general public will accept that for, but they will not accept 10,000 princes not paying their electric bill when their own electric bill just tripled. So he had to downsize the royal family and he, and he did do that. Um, he also introduced social changes. Uh, he has again, in, I would argue there embracing the inevitable, but he has been a pragmatist for a long time. Um, it's not, I'll just give you an example. Back in 1990, a long time ago, 30 years ago, when they had the first driving um, protest, he was aware that that was being planned. Uh, he basically let it happen. Um, 
And he had actually, the media is in Saudi Arabia is largely controlled, and he had actually had articles put in the newspaper both for and against women driving so that he could judge the uh, outcome. And when the driving event took place, it really was badly timed in that it happened at exactly the moment of um, the Operation Desert Storm when American and other foreign troops were arriving. And this was a lightning rod for many of the religious conservatives. So they came and they really protested vehemently against the uh, women driving. And so he more or less had to concede and his brother, his, really it was his brother Nayef who um, cracked down on the women driving. Um, and so, and, and the reason they did that was because they didn't need protests at the time when they were bringing American troops in. So my point there is that he's been if you will, on, I wouldn't say the liberal side of things, I would say on the pragmatic side of things for a long time. Um, and the same goes with corruption. He's been an uh, opponent of corruption for a long time. And when you look at the reforms that he's brought in, uh, one of them is a major one really is his um, opposition to corruption and his crackdown on corruption. And the events at the Rich Carlton are widely known. And th that was really in the sense, the kickoff of the, uh, campaign, but that campaign has continued um, and it has certainly uh, netted, if that's the right word, people who were far less well-known than those people who went to the Ritz. And this has changed the way business is done in Saudi Arabia. It's, uh, if you talk to Saudi businessmen, they will tell you that there's, there's less graft, there's less corruption. Uh, this is partly because people are worried about getting arrested. It's partly because many things have now gone online and are done electronically where there's, it's more difficult to um, influence the decision-making process. And it, finally, I think that it's also changed the social acceptability of um, corruption, which at one time people sort of blinked and turned, and turned a blind eye, and they still invited you to parties and they still put you on the board of important charities, even though they knew you were somewhat tainted. Although that's changing. Now people are people are less um, inclined to just accept that this is a normal way of doing business. So um, I think those are some of the things that the king has uh, has changed most dramatically: his attitude toward corruption, his attitude uh, social change, and his attitude toward his own family. Uh, Biden administration. Uh, you want me to ask about the the Biden administration? Right. Trial today. I, my, my, I, as I said, really in the argument of the book is I think that the Biden administration should and probably will continue to engage with the Saudis. If they ask for a clearer statement of uh, apology and uh, well, that's not the right word, apology, a statement of what they're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again uh, on the Jamal Khashoggi thing, I think that um, they, they, that's probably going to happen. There may be some arm sales delayed, uh, but I would be surprised if they dismantled the entire relationship. In terms of the human rights trial that has begun, uh, I think that that's a good thing. Um, I'll say three things about that. Uh, first of all, the Saudis do not believe, in fact, they've, they said this, Prince Turkey said this in Washington last week, that these people are not in jail, uh, and Adel Jaber said it as well, that these people are not in jail because they wanted to support women driving that there were many women who supported women driving, who protested for women driving, who were not in jail. Uh, that these people are in jail because of basically what they would call espionage, 
uh, and collaboration with foreign governments. And, and they haven't said who that is, but we can imagine that it's probably Qatar, uh, that they, um, they feel that these people were undermining state security. Whether that's true or not, I'm not making a judgment. I'm just saying that's what they have said and that now there will be a trial. And this has been a concern. I mean, if the Saudis have, if these people are doing something that is dangerous to national security, uh, then no government would permit that. But if that's the case, then you need to have a trial and you need to show us the evidence. And I think that's what they're gonna do. So if they actually sh sh produce evidence in an open trial that these people were doing more than just being human rights activists, fair enough. But if they don't have any evidence or they aren't able to, for whatever reason, to show it to us, then I think that they have even more to answer to in terms of their human rights record. So we'll have to see. But in general, I think it's a good idea. I think they're going to have a trial. And let, now let's see what the trial brings up. Thank you. We have several questions from the floor. If I can invite first uh, Alessandro Arduino, who's a colleague and a friend at MEI, to unmute and ask his question. Alex? Hi, I, I was asking the question, uh, basically Britain, because I'm not sure if my connection is, uh, is good. But anyway, my question was, uh, if the conflict in Yemen, the increasing number of drone attacks by Houthis, uh, and uh, the relationship in the coalition with UAE, how is going to affect the security aspect of the kingdom uh, in the long term. Thank you very much. Well, the Saudis have um, legitimate security concerns in Yemen, which is why they went to war. They don't want to have an Iranian-influenced militia uh, on their southern border any more than the Israelis want to have Hezbollah on their northern border. The Israelis have not been successful in getting rid of Hezbollah, and I'm not sure that the Saudis are going to be any more successful in getting rid of the Houthis. Uh, there are significant differences between Hezbollah and the Houthis, and I, we could go into that. I don't want to conflate them completely, but the, the concept of a foreign power influencing a militia on your border is not a positive thing for the Saudis. Uh, they believe, and I think they're right, that Yemen is to some is 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 a soft underbelly and a way to destabilize Saudi Arabia. The Egyptians certainly tried to do that in the '60s, and they believe that the Iranians will try to do it now. Uh, so they are not going to abandon uh, this struggle as long as they don't see some addressing of their legitimate concerns, and I think they are legitimate concerns. Um, they're now, they also understand that the war will be very difficult, in fact, probably impossible for them to win militarily. So they are going to have to come up with some kind of a negotiated solution. I think that the Biden administration will help them uh, to end the war. And they have talked about creating some kind of a buffer zone uh, between the um, two countries. So I think that um, there is no easy solution. Uh, I also think, to be honest, while we're talking about Yemen, is that, you know, Yemen is badly fragmented now. What's really going on in Yemen is a civil war in which the Saudis are a player, but by no means the only player. And the country will, it will be a long time uh, before that country is put back together, whatever the Saudis do. Uh, 
So uh, even if the Saudis stop their involvement tomorrow, um, it's going to be a long time before Yemen is, is, a, is a pleasant and happy country again. Um, you mentioned the conflict with the um, Emiratis over uh, their strategy or philosophy. Uh, the Emiratis have been unhappy that the Saudis collaborated with Islam, which is essentially a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot. Uh, the Saudis were willing to work with them because they were against the Houthis. Uh, but the Saudis in the last week have cracked down on their own Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the senior scholars have made a statement that the Muslim Brothers are terrorists. Uh, and I think the Saudis are beginning to distance themselves from Islam. So I think the net area, which was a major contention point between UAE and the Saudis, that I think that's actually getting better. Um, before I go back to questions from the, the floor, I just want to come back on the issue of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, you may have seen the poll that was released in the last 24 hours by the Washington Institute for Near East Policy in which I thought there were two interesting, uh, uh, two interesting answers to questions. One was that just under half of uh, those surveyed seemed to disagree with the government's position on the Muslim Brotherhood and take a more empathetic or more, uh, or more constructive view towards the Brotherhood. The other thing which was interesting, um, which we haven't spoken about yet, but maybe a, a good point, a good moment to bring in, was that, uh, again, a significant segment of the population, you know, opinion was divided, felt that the uh, Saudi government should be compromising or, or that the, the, the parties to the Gulf Rift, uh, Qatar, in this case, Saudi Arabia, should be co uh, more compromising in terms of trying to resolve the, uh, the crisis. I wonder. I mean, I mean, I didn't see this. They're, they're, they should be compromised in terms of Yemen or in terms of the Qatar. In terms of the conflict of the rift with Qatar, so they were talking about the, the uh, both sides of the divide uh, with Qatar. Right. Well, um, I think that's. An, I didn't see that poll, but I think that this was this was basically done just in Saudi Arabia. Uh, yes, and it was. Public, okay. uh, that's very interesting. No, yes. I look. I um. The Muslim Brotherhood is a very diverse organization. And there are wide ranges of views within that organization, uh, some which are very moderate and some which are very extreme. Um, the Saudi government, uh, I would say, views is more concerned about the extreme part of the organization, which does exist. Uh, and they believe that they are a existential threat to the regime and that they are, um, in fact, in some cases, they, you would argue that they would argue, they would argue that they're the biggest threat to the regime because they're an internal threat and they are the organizing force for those who oppose the regime for one way or another. Uh, if there is an organized resistance to the government in Saudi Arabia, and we've talked about this before, uh, it will not be from people who are promoting secular democracy. It will be from people who are promoting Islam as the means for improving economic 
equality and social justice. Uh, and you can find those ideas expressed in the Muslim Brotherhood philosophy. And so that is, um, that is something that the Saudis government uh, feels is a threat. That's, that's true. Um, I don't know if I, um, and that people, and, and so I guess what I'm trying to say, I, I didn't answer that really very clearly. They, there definitely are people who, and I would agree with that poll, that there are a lot of people who um, see the Muslim Brotherhood as a legitimate uh, force for expressing uh, their political views. And the government tends to view them more uh, as more of a sinister force and focuses on the more extreme versions uh, and what do that and the extreme version? What does that mean? They are they do have a cell structure. They do have a secretive uh, methodology. They do, in theory, have a supreme leader who you're supposed to have taken uh, an oath of allegiance to, which is compromising to a Saudi citizen's oath of allegiance to the king. And they do have the belief that there should be a vanguard or a party which is somewhat similar to the Communist Party, that, that those are the people who should lead the so-called revolution. So those are the, if you will, the negative parts of the organization, which the Saudi government is focused on, and the positive parts, which is that they are trying to bring about social justice, uh, is the part that other people focus on. So there's a dichotomy there, and, I, and I'm not surprised that half the people focus on one and half the people focus on the other. Right. The other question was with regard to um... Uh, Qatar. That's a long and complicated um, dispute, which has both politically and, and, and personal uh, animosities. I don't really want to go into all the details of that. It's a long conversation. Uh, but I will say that the Saudis, uh, not the Saudis, the UAE has said recently that um, resolving that is not high on their list of things to do. Uh, so I think it will be high on the list of the Biden administration's things to do. I think the Biden administration, the United States would like to see that problem resolved. We have good relations with both Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia, and we don't, it's not helpful to us to see the two of them feuding. Um, they, on the other hand, have deep, uh, deep issues that, um, and one of those issues is, is the, and it's not perceived. I mean, it's a fact that the Qataris have supported the Muslim brothers. Uh, both by giving them sanctuary in Qatar, but also by supporting the Muslim Brotherhood movement in, in Egypt when, during the Arab Spring, which was something the Saudis were very much against. Uh, and you have to understand that the Muslim brothers don't like kings, okay? That they are anti-monarchical. The Muslim Brotherhood have two ideologies which are core to their belief, which are part of them don't like Western influence. They were originally founded as an anti-colonial get rid of the British in Egypt um, movement. So they have a they have an anti-Western sentiment, uh, which they sometimes emphasize and sometimes don't, but it's part of their DNA. And they also have a part which is that they don't like monarchies or hereditary governments, and they view those governments as illegitimate and therefore, and not Islamic enough. So they have an inherent dislike both for the United States and to some extent, and they would, they have members who would deny that, but I would say if you read their literature, uh, it's pretty hard to deny. And they certainly have parts of their doctrine that um, don't like monarchies or hereditary governments, which is obviously what the Saudi government is. So those are reasons for tension uh, uh, and also reasons for why some people would support them. 
and why it's not surprising to me that you take a poll and you'll find both. I'd like to come back to Gaza in a little bit, but let me take uh, several questions from the floor first. If I can first invite Samuel Cheen. Samuel. Hello? Okay. Let me Hello. Hi, sorry, I'm just on uh, my mic, yeah. Um, so uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, sir, and I just have two questions. The first relates to Mohammed bin Salman, and I'd like to hear your assessment on whether you think uh, Mohammed bin Salman will be able to successfully and peacefully succeed his father, King Salman. And the second question relates to his Vision 2030 reforms in the context of COVID-19, uh, as well as the global economic downturn. What do you think are the prospects for the success of those reforms over the next five or 10 years? Thank you. Well, I've, I've answered these questions in, with far too long of uh, answers, so I'll be very quick on yours. Um, yes, I believe he will succeed his father. Uh, I don't believe that there is a serious opposition that could be mobilized against him at this point. They've been very effective at uh, making sure of that. So yes, I think he will succeed his father and uh, assuming he remains in good health, which we wish him, uh, that uh, he will be with us for a long time. Uh, secondly, uh, in terms of Vision 2030, uh, Vision 2030 is aspirational. Vision 2030 is precisely what it says. It's a vision. Um, the country is already better off for having had that vision and for implementing parts of it. And it is true that they, the, 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 the book is called Vision or Mirage. Part of it is a mirage and it will be difficult to obtain, but part of it has definitely already been obtained. The fiscal reforms that they have implemented are very real. The social reforms that they have implemented are very real. Uh, it's not um, coincidence that the bond ratings of almost all the other GCC countries were downgraded uh, as a result of COVID. Uh, the Saudi bond rating was not downgraded. Uh, at least it's been, I don't think it was unless it's been done in the last few days and I didn't see it because it hasn't been downgraded. Um, and the reason for that was because they increased taxes so that their fiscal position remained, uh, remained better than many of their fellow uh, Gulf states. So those things are happening. The, um, now, you will they reach all these goals by 2030? No, I don't think they will. Uh, should they have called it Vision 2050? Yes, probably. Has COVID made it worse and made it more difficult? And many things which were going in the right direction have been put into reverse in Saudi Arabia, just like they have been in uh, a lot of other countries. So yes, uh, COVID made it a lot worse. COVID will slow it down, uh, but it's already had significant success. Uh, well, it, it's not gonna achieve everything it wanted to. Look, it's not gonna turn um, Saudi Arabia into Singapore or South Korea, uh, but it doesn't have to. Uh, they're always going to be um, a resource exporter and they're always going to have um, considerable leeway in their economy because they are an exporter of oil and petrochemicals. But they need to make some adjustments to their welfare state and they're trying to do that. So I think that's the answer. It'll, it will succeed to some extent, it already has, it will succeed more, will it achieve 100%? Probably not, has COVID slowed it down? Yes. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to next recognize Paul Freeland of the South China Morning Post. You want to unmute, your, unmute yourself? Okay, there we go. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks very much for the talk. Um, earlier, uh, earlier in the session, uh, someone mentioned like the, the meeting between uh, MBS, uh, Netanyahu, as well as uh, Mike Pompeo and the head of Mossad. I, I, what I'm wondering is, well, I, well some of the special, speculation I've seen around the meeting was it, it was meant to form some kind of united front in order to keep uh, the maximum pressure campaign against Iran in place. I, so what I'm wondering is, I, how likely is that to be the case? And if it is, um, how might this uh, this uh, Saudi-Israeli kind of alliance, so to speak, you know, make that happen? You know, what sort what sort of tools do they have in their belt to keep the Biden administration from going back to another nuclear deal with Iran? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer. Um, what tools do they have to keep the Biden administration from going back? Well, I think that uh, that's an interesting question. Um, in the case of the Israelis, they have a strong lobby in Washington. I would agree with you, your premise that both of those countries would prefer to see a pressure maintained on Iran. Uh, so the question, so I'd agree with the premise. The question is what tools do they have to do that? I think the principal question, the principal tool that the Israelis have is a strong influence on domestic politics in the United States. Um, although that is to some extent divided because there are some people who don't support Netanyahu, some members of the pro-Israeli community. Uh, and the Saudis have a wide range of areas, which I alluded to earlier, where they are an important ally of the United States. And anyone who becomes president will, if, and Biden has been around for a long time, so he's well aware of this, that um, the Saudis um, play a very important role in our counterterrorism efforts. They have saved American lives more than once. Uh, that they are now promoting a much more moderate version of Islam and that they continue to play a, an important role in um, global energy markets. Uh, so I don't, and, and that was that was regulated or recognized just, you know, four or five months ago when um, the American energy sector was in bad shape uh, and Trump actually wanted the Saudis to raise the price of oil. Or he wanted the price of oil to be raised, and who did he go and talk to? He went. He didn't go talk to Venezuela or Iran. He went and talked to the Saudis, and to some extent the Russians. Um, so um, I think that the the the, ben the the way that the Saudis would argue the case is that we're a strong ally. And and I'll give you another um, example of what they do, which is sometimes people overlook. Uh, the United States is a status quo power. We like peace and stability. Uh, the Saudis spend a great deal of money on foreign aid, promoting peace and stability. The Saudis don't have a big army, uh, but they have a big checkbook. And they have used that checkbook effectively to help uh, stabilize the Middle East many times. Uh, the most obvious example really was uh, in Egypt. You know, the United, after the Arab Spring, when uh, this place was very shaky, uh, and that would have been a big problem for Europe if uh, Egypt had collapsed into chaos like Libya did, the, or even like Syria did, the flood of refugees heading for Europe would have been a, a, a tsunami. Uh, 
So the United States provided Egypt with about $2 billion. The Gulf states, uh, which Saudi Arabia being the leader, uh, provided 20 billion, 10 times as much. So the Saudis play an important role many in many ways, quietly behind the scenes. And I think that uh, the Biden administration and every other administration will recognizes that. So I think those are the two um, areas that the, the, the two most important areas, how the Saudis and the Israelis would influence um, a Biden administration, along with, I guess, the third thing I would say is um, simply logical arguments. Uh, they would make the case that um, the Iranians did not respond favorably to the Obama initiative and that they're unlikely to do so now. The pro-Iran deal people would argue, and I've heard them argue, and they would argue that um, that Trump didn't give the nuclear deal time to succeed. So you can look at that either way. Um, but anyway, that's that my answer to your question. I think that's the, to, that's what they would do. Thank you very much. If I may, before I return to the audience, uh, follow up on this. It strikes me that the Saudis are contemplating a third tool, which is if you look at the state recent statements, both by the Saudi foreign minister as well as by Prince Turki al-Faisal, that seemed to take as a given that there would be a return in one form or another to a negotiation with Iran. And it was that, uh, that third tool was the demand that they be given an equal, that Saudi Arabia be given an equal seat at the, uh, at the negotiating table in order to be able to represent their interests. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I agree with you. That's, that, that I should have mentioned that. And you're absolutely right. And, you know, the Saudis, they're not, a, they don't object to an agreement with, that, that's very well said. They don't object to an agreement. They just want an agreement that's a little bit broader that doesn't end in 12 years and that includes ballistic missiles and that includes, you know, stopping the war in Yemen or stop supporting the Houthis. So you're right. I mean, if they, uh, my gut feeling is that that's not going to happen. Okay, I don't think the Iranians are going to sign up for a deal like that. Uh, so that's why I, I am not optimistic. But you're right that if this, if this, if they could get a deal like that, the Saudis would be very happy. Thank you. If I can now invite uh, Sajid Rafian to unmute and ask his question. Sajid. Oh, what happened to Sajid? If not, I'll uh, read out his question. Okay. Which is, um, would the Biden administration accept Mohammed bin Salman as an important player, or will they opt for Mohammed bin Nayef, the former crown prince? Uh, having been involved in that, I would be surprised if the United States government uh, in any formal or serious way attempted to unseat the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. I would be very, I would, I'd be shocked actually if they, if they did that. So no, I don't think that the United States government is going to try and rehabilitate Mohammed bin Nayef. Um, 
I do think that the United States owes Mohammed bin Nayef a debt because of the services that he provided to, he saved American lives. And we should seek that he is treated fairly and well and that nothing untoward happens to him or his family. Uh, but the idea that we would attempt to dethrone the crown prince and put Mohammed bin Nayef back, I would be surprised at that. Uh, I'd like to invite the audience to please come forward with questions and comments. We really would like to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, if I may, let me come back to the Qatar question for a moment. You mentioned that the Biden administration would uh, probably attribute a high importance to resolving the Gulf Rift. And the question is, how do you do that? There was some speculation in recent weeks that there may be a first step between uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar with opening up airspace to Qatari uh, aircraft to overfly um, uh, Saudi Arabia. You had the um, Saudi Qatari ambassador to the United States in the last 24 hours saying that the, the first, a first step would, could be humanitarian, which would include not only opening of the airspace, but also allowing uh, both pilgrim visit, pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina, as well as family visits. And on the other hand, you had, what you, as you quoted, uh, the, the Emiratis in the form of uh, the ambassador of the United States, Yusuf Al-Oteba, saying Qatar's on nobody's agenda. It's not important. So the question is, how do you get a process going? And are we going to see daylight in the, position, in, in the positions that Saudi Arabia may take? as opposed to the United Arab Emirates? You know, I don't, I, honestly, I don't really think that I, I know the answer to that. I'm not, I'm not sure how you're gonna solve that problem. And I'm not sure that it really, you know, it, I would, the United States would like to see the problem resolved, but the United States cannot solve every dispute between every neighboring country in the world. So what we would like to see and what actually happens are often two different things. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure that we should really even, you know, we, we have interests with both those countries. So we'd like to see them solve their problem. And we, but what, what tool or mechanism we could, look, they have fundamental differences. They have, they, the, the Saudis believe that the Emirates, that the Qataris have hosted people who are very um, antagonistic to their regime. So until there's some change in that, I'm not sure that the Saudis are interested really in um, resolving or not, not resolving. They'd like to resolve it, they, but I don't think they're going to re, rescind their boycott until they see some change in the way that the Qataris um, are behaving. So if the, and the Qataris would argue that they didn't do anything. So I'm not trying to place, you know, I'm not trying to be in the middle of, or to, side on either one of these groups. It's like the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, there's people who like them, there's people who don't like them. There are things about them to like and there are things about them not to like. So there are two sides to the Qatar story as well. Um, and I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer to how the United States can solve that dispute between them, which as I say, is also personal and generational as, and, and territorial as well as uh, ideological and political. So it's a complicated problem and I don't have an answer. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> Wish I did. It does, it does raise a question, which in a broader sense is a question that you've raised in your book. The question that you raised in your book basically was going forward, how important is uh, Saudi Arabia to the West and particularly to the United States? And then more specifically in, in terms of uh, United States and the Gulf Rift, how debilitating is the uh, um, is the Gulf Rift for U.S. policy and U.S. interests, particularly at a moment at which the United States is expected to reconfigure its interests in the Middle East? Like making Saudi Arabia a pariah state, I think the idea that the United States is withdrawing from the Middle East is more of a headline than a reality. Um, if the United States decides to close down its facilities in the UAE, in Qatar, in Bahrain, if it decides to withdraw all of its forces from Kuwait, if it actually pulled the people out of Prince Sultan Air Base south of Riyadh, uh, if all of this happened, you know, I'd begin to think that maybe the United States is repositioning itself. Um, I don't see any of that happening. Uh, so, and I, I think that this is a headline. I think that the United States has a very significant presence here and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Right. Let's look at the Yaludade base. I mean, there's no talk about shutting down Yaludade base. Uh, so I, 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 don't, I don't see that happening. No, I, I would agree with you, but that still retains the question, given what you were saying before, how, how, how debilitating or how disrupting? Oh, that's a good question. No, I didn't answer your question. You're right. Um, I think it's a nuisance. I don't think it's a fundamental I don't think it's a, it's not, in my view, it's not a fundamental problem for the United States. That these, it would be better for us if these two people got along. We have good, in, we have good relations with both of them. We would like to see them uh, friendly and partners, uh, but it's kind of like, are, should, we really be, should we really be upset that Britain wanted to get out of the EU uh, and Germany and France thought they should stay in the EU? Uh, so what the British people want to do, they want to leave. So it's not really for us to try and mediate that problem. Uh, it's up to them. And I think to some extent, that's the case with the Qatar-Saudi feud. If I, I mean, that's my personal opinion. I don't know what Biden administration is going to do. They're probably going to try to resolve it. And I wish them luck in doing it. But I think that it would require a fundamental change on the part of both parties really to come to some kind of an agreement. I could be wrong. It could, maybe they'll make peace tomorrow, but I don't, I don't, I don't see it happening right away. Another way of looking at that is that uh, there's, you know, essentially Yusuf Oteba is right. There is no pressure on the parties, real pressure on the parties to resolve this. But having said that, they're also, if, and particularly if this, the resolution presumably is going to be a face-saving solution for all, the parties themselves are not capable of doing it and in a sense need assistance. 
Well, that's true. I mean, you could, that's true. You, I mean, you could find the, the United States could help them find a face saving way to do it. And that would be a benefit for us. And we would be happy to see them uh, back on the same page. That would certainly be something we would like. And if we could find a way to do it in a space saving way. But as I say, I think the fund there, it could be, it, to me, the only, the one of the more likely ways that the Saudis would end it, because you got to remember the Saudis and the UAE are the ones that made this blockade, right? So they're the ones that are going to have to end it. It's not that the Qataris made a blockade on the Saudis. Um, so the Saudis and the Emiratis will, re, will stop this. Um, one way they might do it is if they just, just decided it wasn't working and it wasn't achieving anything and it was costing them more than it was worth. Now that I, that, that's an argument that they might actually make with, with, before the Emirat, before the Qataris actually changed uh, some of the policies that they objected to. They could just decide it's not working. Um, to some extent, that's what happened with the Israelis uh, and the Arab states that have now recognized them is that the cost and benefit analysis changed. The costs, the opportunity costs of not having relations with Israel or the opportunity costs of not having good relations with Qatar could become higher and the benefits of the blockade could become less uh, because they're seen as not working. So that, that could, change, could change things. Uh, let me now invite now, um, again, another colleague and friend from MEI, Amin Lutfi. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, uh, thank you so much for the talk. I had a question about, I mean, the, this issue with downsizing uh, other princes or other royalties, uh, do you think it would also lead to problems with managing populations? Because it, some of these local princes, it was not just that they were uh, amassing money for themselves, but there was some kind of patron-client relationship with the larger population. They each had their own following, their own groups and so on. Um, would there be like a fracturing of the society because you're getting a, a grid of this middle tier of people who are responsible for the, for the relationship with larger publics as well? Yes, the answer to your question is yes, yes. And it's the same with the uh, merchants and tribes and, and the religious establishment, yes. That, that is a connection that is weakened, yes. You're absolutely right, what you, what you identified and what you saw uh, it means that the, the structure of the country has changed and that there used to be all of these many different, look, they didn't, it didn't disappear. Okay, mm -hmm. these people are still there. Uh, but their ability to, and it, and it didn't, it, 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 did, it, did, it didn't, um, I'm stuttering, they did, didn't go away, um, but it was diminished. And to the extent that it was diminished, it weakened the consensus and consultation uh, structure that 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 worked. Yes. Do you do you think any of them have enough influence to form substantial like factions uh, within Saudi Arabia? No. Not with any not with any physical force. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. And I don't think. And I also, quite frankly, don't think that they want to. Okay, because the princes understand that they may have been downsized, but they're still princes. And they're still getting paid, okay? And they still have prestige. And the last thing you want to do is rock the boat and have some kind of an overthrow of the monarchy or uh, civil war amongst the princes. Uh, this is in their DNA to avoid something like that. I believe 
quite clearly that the majority of the princes have fallen in behind Mohammed bin Salman. They've accepted that they can't all be as rich as their fathers were, which is inevitable. All right. These guys, you know, you, if you're a grandson of Abdulaziz, you're not going to be as rich and powerful as if you're a son. There were, you know, 34 sons and, you know, over 500 grandsons. So there'll be, their role will be diminished. That's inevitable. They understand that, I think. Some of them are more angry and maybe some of them understand it less well than others. But no, I don't think that they're going to try and create some kind of a revolution against the MBS. Some of them are unhappy. There's no doubt about that. Some of them are unhappy, but what they're going to do about it, I think, is, 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 is there's a lot of people in America who are unhappy because Biden won the election, right? Are they going to make a revolution? No, I don't think so. Um, before, before I, I want to come back to U.S. policy in the, in the Gulf, but before I do that, I want to follow up on Amim's question. It strikes me that another factor is, which is something that you um, discussed uh, more elaborately in the book, which is uh, that there is also the concern of be careful what you wish for. Yeah, that's for sure. So with other words, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on uh, if there were instability and uh, Mohammed bin Salman's position were called into question, what that would mean in terms of what may or may not follow. Well, um, if the El Saud monarchy was replaced through violence, the winner would be a jihadist organization like El like Al Qaeda or ISIS. Uh, these are the violent prone organizations. We, I lived through an Al Qaeda insurrection, which went on for three years, which resulted in hundreds of deaths, uh, which overran the American consulate in Jiddah, which tried to blow up the uh, processing facilities at Abcake, which did blow up part of the Ministry of Saudi, Ministry of Interior. Uh, so it was a very violent and, and protracted um, insurrection. Uh, if there was a violent insurrection, again, it would come from people like that. I think it was clear that the Saudi people rejected that, that the, by and large, the majority of the people did not wish to follow that route. If the Saudi government were replaced through a peaceful method, uh, political method, the winners would be some sort of Islamists. Uh, that is to say somebody in, who's in some form uh, related to the religious, um, really to the, to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, at the end of the day, because they are the most organized. They did win a number of the municipal elections. Uh, they are still organized. They still do have followers. They and they and they are uh, attractive to people who believe that Islam is the way to bring about social justice, who believe that Islam is the way to bring about economic equality. So there are people who believe that, and that would be. And as I said, those people are not particularly aligned with Western interests or values. They have, they, they sometimes appear to be, but I, I am confident in what I'm saying is if you study what 
Said Qutb and Hassan al-Banna have to say, they're not really, um, shall we say, aligned with the West. So neither if the, and the Saudi people had a chance to fall in behind that parade at the time of the Arab Spring. And for a wide range of reasons, there were no Saudi protests, uh, except in the Shia areas uh, in the Arab Spring. So I don't think that there was a, at that time anyways, a, a large amount of support for that, overthrowing the government and replacing it with something like happened in Egypt. So I think that the, the point that I was, that, that I think you're alluding to is that um, those people who argue that we should distance ourselves from the Saudis because of their human rights record um, should reflect on what happened to the Shah of Iran. We decided that he had a bad human rights record and therefore we couldn't support him. And we ended up with something that um, has been problematic for the last 40 years. And I would close this part of my answer by saying that to me, the most important human right that anybody has is security. The most important right that you have is that you can send your child to school or your wife to the grocery store and you can expect that they come back alive. And that most Saudis value that above whether or not they get to vote for the Majlis al-Shura. And that our emphasis on promoting uh, democracy, if you will, at times is destabilizing. And that's not what you're supposed to say if you work in the American embassy, but it happens to be pretty obvious that um, our efforts to promote democracy in uh, places like Iraq um, or even where it existed, places like Lebanon have not been particularly uh, successful. So we should be careful. I think before we begin promoting um, democracy and human rights, if in fact it undermines the most important human right, which is stability. And that is exactly what happened in Iran. And those people, uh, I'm not sure that many of them think they're better off. Uh, and I think the same could be said for our own efforts in Iraq, where a lot of people may think that they're not all that much better off. So anyway, I just, uh, that, that's what I'm talking about when I said you need to be careful what you ask for. Thank you. Uh, allow me to now invite uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Tilak Toshi. For, for his question. Uh, thank you, James. Um, and thank you, David, for a very good talk. Uh, do you think it's, uh, uh, there is a likelihood that while uh, the King Salman is alive, that they may sign an agreement, a normalization agreement with Israel? And if not, then do you think that uh, after he passes and MBS takes over, that that would be a likelihood. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think you're, look, I think that it's more difficult for the king, the king. The attitude toward the Abraham Accords is generational. People under 30 uh, don't really care. Um, people over 60 feel very emotionally attached to the Palestinian cause. King is 80, he's in the latter group. Um, so, you, to some extent, answered your own question, um, which is, I didn't mean that to sound critical. I just, I think you did answer it in the sense that it would be easier if um, 
the, when the king is gone. Uh, however, I don't foreclose the possibility that the king could make an agreement. The king has said many times, and the Saudis have said many times, they do not have a problem with an agreement with Israel. They've actually, they would like an agreement with Israel, but it's like the agreement with Iran. They would like an agreement which they feel they got something in return. Uh, the Saudis would be happy, as I said, to have an agreement with Iran that uh, made them not just work on a nuclear bomb, but uh, also get out of Yemen. So the Saudis would be happy to have an agreement with um, Israel that provided some compensation. Uh, they've stated what it ought to be, but I would imagine they could compromise on that again. Uh, what, what are the Palestinians going to get? So if the Palestinians got some kind of a, a deal that they could live with, the Saudis would be happy with that. Um, I also think that what you said is right, that um, the resistance to that agreement will be less uh, when Mohammed bin Salman is the king. Thank you. If I can follow up on that, and, and I, obviously this is not an issue directly in whatever negotiation there would be between Israel and Saudi Arabia about establishing diplomatic relations. But, but related to that, the, the question of whether uh, the, uh, the administration of uh, the Haram al-Sharif, or, or uh, whether that is an issue that is important to Saudi Arabia in terms of wanting to have a say in it, or do, and, and whether at all that's something that they do want. Granted, that's not going to be what determines relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, or whether they establish formal relations, but it is obviously part related to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure, that would be a, that would be part of the, that would certainly be an uh, advantage to any to getting any agreement with Saudi Arabia would be recognition of some role for them in the third holiest spot for the Muslim world since they are the custodians of the first two they would clearly like to have a say in the, about the third as well yeah that's a good point okay I still want to encourage people to raise their hand with questions but in the meantime. If you'll allow me, David, I want to come back to U.S. policy. Uh, and the question being, I think it's absolutely correct, there's nothing on the ground that would indicate uh, that the United States is withdrawing from the Middle East. I mean, some people have interpreted the U.S. failure last summer to respond immediately to uh, the attacks on the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia, as well as the uh, uh, the vessels off the coast of the United Arab Emirates as a sign that the United States was less interested. And President Trump had a very transactional response to those attacks. Uh, but there has been discussion of, I mean, this goes back to the, uh, even the Obama administration and not only with regard to the Middle East, but also with regard to the Middle East, the concept of burden sharing and there apparently has been discussion in the National Security Council in the Trump presidency of even looking at a more multilateral arrangement in the Gulf uh, or multilateral security architecture. So I don't think, I think you're right. We're not talking about the United States packing their bags and, and leaving, but potentially we may be talking about a different, uh, a different arrangement, whether that's, in the, and then the question is, is that a different arrangement with the United, US allies and partners in the region, 
or is that an arrangement that go, that could um, uh, that could go beyond that? Well, the first thing I would say is um, I think people uh, misinterpret this um, lack of reaction to the um, attack on Abcake. There was a very clear and, and definitive response, which was taking out Qasem Soleimani. So um, that was a very um, direct uh, response to the Abcake uh, episode. And it was far more effective than shooting a few missiles at a refinery. And it was in fact, really um, shooting a few missiles at, this, at a refinery uh, was not something the Saudis wanted to see. They, far from being unhappy, uh, they were hoping that we didn't start a war because then if we fired a few missiles at our Iranian refinery to take response to Abcake, then they would fire a few more missiles back. And this time it might be at the desalinization plants that uh, Riyadh depends on. So no, they were not at all uh, dismayed. Uh, it was people in the Western media who invented this story that we didn't do anything. And uh, taking out Qasem Soleimani was a serious blow to them. Uh, so I don't buy the argument that there was no reaction. Um, the question of burden sharing is something we would welcome. Obviously, um, the um, costs of maintaining all of these forces here and protecting sea lanes for the global transshipment of energy uh, is expensive and we would welcome uh, people helping us. And I'm sure that the new administration will try and do that. And that's one more reason why I don't think you're gonna make Saudi Arabia a pariah state because they can play an important role. Right now they are building a Navy. Uh, they have ships that are, that are being built right now. Um, and so they could help us in this area and we would welcome that help. And I think we will try to obtain more of it. And I think Trump tried and I think Biden will do more. And I, if you, what you're talking about is other people from out of what they call out of the region, uh, yes. I mean, right now there is, there is a multinational force that patrols the parts of the uh, Arabian Sea. And I think that to the extent, and it does this blockade, this arms blockade on Yemen. Uh, so I think the expanding that would be a good idea. Okay, well, allow me to give the floor now to Anju uh, Patwatan. Hi, thank you. Uh, let me see if my video lets me talk. Okay, great. And mine is not a question, it's a comment. Uh, uh, about the reform and how real are the changes in Saudi Arabia. And I think I'm an example of that. I joined the board of a bank in Saudi Arabia early last year as a non-executive director. And I have been going there every quarter for the board meetings. And I have to say that even from uh, the first time that I visited in February of last year to uh, Feb this year, which was my last trip pre-COVID, uh, things have been uh, changing for the better at a very, very significant pace. And I would say the reforms are very real. I've been to lots of young men and women uh, in, in the in the bank, and uh, they are very excited about all the, all the change that's happening in the country. Which bank is that? Uh, Gulf International Bank. Oh. GIB. GIB. 
Yeah, so I work, uh, it's with them and uh, BIF, which is the sovereign fund. No, I would agree with you. I mean, you know, if anybody who has been to Saudi Arabia in the last five years uh, and who had seen the place before five years uh, would be shocked. I mean, astonished by the pace of change. I think, you know, if I, if I just talk for a minute here to the people that are listening, um, those changes are very real, very significant. Uh, the majority of people in the country support them. Uh, there's probably, I always, I, I think there's probably about 25% of the people who don't support them. They're probably about 20%. I don't know if you would agree with this, but I think there's a, there's probably 20% of the people who think that things are going too fast, who don't want women to drive, who don't want movie theaters. I know people, I know people who've actually left Riyadh because they wanted to go back to more conservative villages or towns uh, because they didn't want these changes. They're not the majority, but they exist and they are organized. Uh, and they are potentially, some of them potentially violent. Um, and then there's another 5% uh, of people who think things aren't going fast enough and who think that, you know, there should be nightclubs and there should be um, elections for parliament and, uh, there, and, and, and who, who want more dramatic, uh, primarily secular democratic changes. Uh, those voices are often loudly listened to in the West, but they're a relatively small percentage of the Saudi population and they're not very well organized and they're not violent. So I don't think they're likely to topple the government anytime soon. Um, but the, the positive changes that are taking place are something that the West should encourage. And these are social and economic changes and it's very much in our interest that they succeed and we should, we should encourage them. Uh, that doesn't, and we should not allow, and, and this is an opinion, much of what I've said today is, a, is fact, but what, this is an opinion. I would say we should not allow our concern for human rights to overshadow um, the significant changes and reforms that are happening there, which are also advancing human rights in many ways. Uh, so anyway, that's what I, I would uh, I would agree with what you're saying. These are real changes. We ought to support them, and we shouldn't uh, sweep them under the rug and pretend that. Uh, I, would, uh, I mean, I don't want to take up more time, but I just give you uh, two examples, which you know, uh, I, I couldn't believe it, uh, but since I was seeing it for myself, I know it's real. Uh, on one of my trips, um, I came out of the airport in Riyadh, and there were like, I think, a couple of hundred young girls. Uh, at the uh, at the exit with their uh, with their mobile phones ready to take photos and screaming and shouting, and I asked later and I was told that some Korean boy band was coming into town and they were all waiting at the airport to greet the band, and the next day there was a concert which was held in a stadium, and attended by hundred thousand uh, uh, young boys and girls. Uh, I mean, you, who would have thought that, you know, there would be concerts like this or there would be young girls at the airport uh, waiting to greet uh, uh, a rock band. So it's, uh, that's it's for sure. fascinating. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, the, some of the stuff you're seeing there, you just, you just, you shake your head and you think, wow, this is definitely not your grandfather's Saudi Arabia. Thank you. Before, before I let Peter Freeland have a second go at you, 
let me turn to my colleague Asif Shuja, who hasn't had a chance yet. Asif. Uh, thank you, uh, James. Uh, my question uh, to uh, our esteemed guest is uh, linked to uh, the section in his book where he has uh, uh, talked about uh, the Arabian Martin Luther. You know, he actually forms a fundamental edifice of the structure of Saudi Arabia that we currently have. That is about Muhammad Abdul Wahab and his contract with Al Saud, because that was the premise. So everything uh, that uh, our esteemed author has talked about uh, MBS uh, has been very positive, but is there any challenge on its way? Because as far as I can see, uh, this basic contract on which Saudi Arabia has been based, that contract is getting weakened. And uh, I would just, uh, uh, I would just request uh, our author to uh, draw some light on that. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, yes, religion, the simplest way to understand Saudi Arabia is to look at European history and see how things evolved. And the, you know, one of the more interesting photographs I've uh, seen is um, the funeral of King Edward, I think it was Edward VIII in Britain. And this was around, I think like 1908, something like that. You look at all the people following the coffin of the English king, and it is a collection of kings and emperors and dukes and grand dukes and archdukes. And at the very, very end of the parade, the very last guy, because he's not a king or a duke or an earl or a prince, is the president of the United States. Teddy Roosevelt. He's the only guy there who's not wearing a big suit with a big hat with the plumes and medals. He's just got on a plain black coat. So he was definitely the odd man out. The odd man out in 1908 when everybody else was some part of some dynasty. Uh, now you look at what happened last week and we had the G20 and there's only one guy left who's a king. Everybody else was a president. Everybody else was a prime minister. So the world has changed. And this is what, this is how the world evolves. And at some point in time, I think Saudi Arabia will evolve to a constitutional monarchy, or it will be probably overthrown if it doesn't evolve, which I, and I think my gut feeling is that it will evolve. So this read, this is a long preamble to your question about the, um, relation with the with religion and i agree with you and as i could have been very quick and say yes religion will become less important in saudi society like it's become less important in western society and what's replacing it at right at this moment is exactly what replaced it in europe and what replaced religion as a result of the french revolution nationalism nationalism replaced religion People stopped thinking themselves as Christians and they started thinking themselves as Frenchmen and Germans and Italians. Uh, and that's what's happening in Saudi Arabia today. And it's being brought to you partly by the Yemen war, which is creating this nationalism. So yes, um, religion remains important uh, and it will remain important for the foreseeable future, but it is less important than it was. And it is to some extent being replaced by nationalism. Thank you. 
Paul, I, uh, before I uh, give you the floor, I think I mistakenly, re mistakenly renamed you in my earlier reference to you, but please go ahead. No worries. It's not the worst thing I've been called today. <laughs> uh, and, and thanks for the second track, uh, second chance. Uh, just a, a general question that also uh, goes back to uh, Ms. Putbordon's question and uh, something, uh, something, that, something that was said earlier. Uh, you mentioned like the reforms that have already been enacted in Saudi Arabia. We've seen things like you know, VAT, budget cuts, people paying reasonable prices for utilities, Saudi football clubs balancing their books, and so on. Uh, how sticky are these reforms, especially the fiscal ones? Uh, COVID-19 won't be around forever, inshallah. And if the world economy starts picking up and oil prices are pushing $70, $80 a barrel again, how tempted might the Saudi government be to ease back on austerity and go back to the, uh, the status quo ante? That's a good question. Um, if, assuming the government remains stable, I don't think that there's any backsliding on the social reforms. And I don't think that they're going to, first of all, I don't think oil's going back to $100 a barrel anytime soon, uh, or even 80. Um, so I'm not sure that's likely to happen. Uh, we can talk about why that is the case, but um, assuming the premise that it did happen uh, I think the government would spend, I'll tell you what they would do. Probably the first thing they would do is the first thing they would do is they'd pay down the debt, which is what they did last time they had an oil boom. So to the extent that their debt, which is now, they want it to be about 30%. So if it got, and they, it, theoretically, they made a judgment that it could go to 50%, but they'd like the 50% of GDP but they'd like it to stay at 30. So if it gets to 50, the first thing they're gonna do is pay down the debt and get it back to 30% of GDP. And then they would probably begin to spend. Uh, I don't think that they would um, rescind the tax, the VAT tax or the subsidy cuts. And if they were gonna do it, I think the first thing they would do is bring the VAT down maybe to 10%. Uh, but I don't think they're gonna bring back those um, those subsidy cuts, because there's an effort to privatize um, utilities, and that re reflects very definitely that that requires some more realistic prices for gasoline and water. Uh, so no, I don't. I, and that's a fundamental part of Vision 2030 uh, that 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 they bring utilities and petrochemical feedstock prices more in line with global markets. So no, I don't. I don't see those being reversed. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you. We're nearing the end of this, but before we uh, we close down, let me follow up uh, in a sense on uh, Paul's question, which is: there's no doubt that there's been, you know, it's been dramatic uh, social reform, whether that's greater rights and uh, and opportunities for women. Uh, whether that's greater, greater leisure opportunities. Uh, and there's also been clearly uh, a number of steps towards economic reform uh, in terms of financial markets and other things. But it strikes me that Mohammed bin Salman, ultimately Mohammed bin Salman's success, and with it to some degree, maybe stability, rides on job creation. And on, on, and on indeed a degree of diversification, particularly if uh, 
uh, energy markets develop as as uh, as they're pro uh, projected to uh, develop in terms of relatively low prices and reduced or, or depressed demand for some time to come. So I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about less of the dramatic side of the implementation of Vision 230 and more about uh, uh, some of the really bricks and mortars of making this, this vision work and, and, and transcending uh, what the kingdom was. Yeah, let me just um, make one comment before I talk about that. And that is, we, we have mentioned the social reforms, we have mentioned the economic reforms. We should mention the political reforms or the political changes. Absolutely. And here it's a very mixed bag. And I think that the listeners, you know, should be aware of that. That um, most of what's happened, in fact, unless you're a religious conservative, the social changes are a good thing. And the economic changes, uh, are moving in the direction that the most economists would, would, would applaud. The political changes are mixed. Um, and the first thing to say about the political change is that they avoided a family feud. So in a sense, what they achieved was they avoided Hello? a bad thing happening. Yeah. There was a real possibility. Can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. There was a real possibility of, uh, if, if not a civil war, certainly a destabilizing family feud. And, they, and that was because we were making this transition from what had been a very stable and predictable way of handing the government from one brother to another brother to another brother. All of a sudden, you ran out of brothers. There weren't any more brothers. They were all dead. So you had to come up with a new system and you had to pick a grandson and that who that was going to be was going to annoy a lot of people because they all thought they should be the next king. So the king avoided that. He got, he engineered the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, and that was a that's an achievement, and it should be recognized as such. I talked about his corruption campaign. The other, the other stuff that he did is, in a positive sense, he centralized the government. He made it more administratively efficient. Uh, he stopped it from being having different fiefdoms all going in their different ways. So that was good in terms of implementing change, but it was bad in the sense that there was, he lost the consensus. It used to be very slow and consensus driven. Now it is more fast and arbitrary. And the worst thing that happened is that he, def and you could argue whether he had to do this or not, but he definitely made the place more authoritarian, more like a police state, more people getting thrown in jail, more, um, surveillance of people, less free speech. That definitely happened. Um, and whether that is permanent or temporary remains to be seen, but it is certainly um, a negative development. So now you ask me, a bit, so that's I think the half full, half empty story on politics. The, um, the economic plan to create jobs attempts to focus on places where the Saudis have some competitive advantage. So they stopped just exporting crude oil and they started refi exporting refined product. Then they started to create petrochemicals, first very basic and simple petrochemicals. Now they're attempting to move into more complicated petrochemicals and plastics. They have a chance of doing this. It's, it's probably going to work, but it doesn't create very many jobs. 
capital, it's very capital intense. So that's not the solution to their jobs. Um, they have mining, they have good reserves of bauxite and phosphate. They have begun to expand their mining industry quite substantially and they could now roll aluminum and now they can produce fertilizer with their phosphate. So that's a success, but again, it doesn't produce nearly enough jobs. So they have tried to do some other things which may be able to create more jobs. One is retail. There are millions of people, certainly hundreds of thousands of people who work as clerks in stores. Most of them are expatriates. Those people are being phased out and they're being replaced by Saudis. And while it's ex interesting to see and, it, and extraordinary to see Saudi girls uh, waiting for the Korean boy band, it's equally startling to see Saudi ladies at the checkout counter in the grocery store, which you would not have seen five years ago. So you are, so they are moving into the retail sector and they've done this quite dramatically. They've made quotas, you know, and, and certain kinds of stores now have to hire only Saudis or a certain percentage of Saudis and that's happening. So they're creating jobs that way, but are these high skilled, high productive jobs? No, they're not. Uh, and so that's a problem. The other thing they're trying to do is the tourism industry. Uh, they have a natural monopoly on religious tourism. Muslims need to go to Mecca or they should go to Mecca and there's only one Mecca. So um, they have a natural monopoly on that. Um, and they're expanding and they are expanding the religious tourism business and they're trying to expand the secular tourism business as well with a number of, um, of uh, tourist destinations, I guess you would call it. But again, those are not high skilled jobs. So the idea that they're gonna become a high tech country anytime soon, I think that's ambitious. Uh, so that's a problem. I mean, whoever asked that question, I guess it was you, James, that you, you, um, you identified a real, a, a, a weakness, a problem. Uh, there's not a, it's, it's kind of like the Qatar Saudi feud. There's not, an, it, there's not an immediate solution. All you can do is say, we're trying and we're doing, we, we don't have any better ideas, but we're trying to implement the ideas that we do have. And that's what I think they're doing. I think eventually they'd like to be able to be productive in some high tech area, but I think that's, that's a ways away. They, their biggest weakness is human capital, okay? Their biggest weakness is motivated, skilled workforce. Uh, and they're, they're making progress on that, but it's still a, a handicap. David. We certainly, I could continue for quite a bit, but unfortunately we are coming to the close of this. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Middle East Institute, I'd really like to thank you for a very insightful and very layered uh, view of the kingdom. And very, you know, I certainly learned a lot and I'm sure that many others among us have. And thank you for taking time out on everybody in the audience for joining us for those who are interested in uh hearing david again i assume that in the next couple of days there will be a um, recording of this session on the mei website which you can listen to and i would also invite you to come to our next uh, or future webinars again, which will be announced on the website of the Middle East Institute.
David, happy Thanksgiving Day to the audience. Thank you very much for joining us. And Thank hopefully- you. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciated it. And uh, hopefully you learned something. And most of it, I tried to keep to fact. I mean, there's some of it was my opinion, uh, but it was hopefully based on fact. So happy Thanksgiving. It was very helpful. And we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. No, take care. Bye-bye. Take care, David. Bye-bye, all.